Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya May 22nd, 2018 in Harmony Collective at Ypsilanti, Michigan. We're reading from Bhagavatam. Canto 2, Chapter 7, Scheduled Incarnations with Specific Functions, Text 37. No, that's not. Devadvisam nigamavartmani nishtitanam Vishamvidayabahubasyatapadarmyam Devadvisham of those who are envious of the devotees of the Lord. Of those who are envious of the devotees of the Lord. Nigama, the Vedas, Vartmani, on the path of Nishtitanam, of the well situated, Purbihi, by rockets, Mayena, made by the great scientist Maya, Vihitabihi, made by Adrishya Turbihi. Unseen in the sky, Lokan, the different planets, Gnatam, of the killers, Mati Vimohan, bewilderment of the mind, Ati Pralobam, very attractive, Vesham, dress, Vidhaya, having done so. Bahu Bashite will talk very much. Apu Padharmyam, sub-religious principles. So he's going to talk a lot wearing very attractive clothing. You have an incarnation who does. Basya means language. Bahu Basya has a lot of language, talks a lot. And we have Atibalobambesha, very beautiful clothes. So obviously, the clothes you wear have something to do with your preaching. Mm-hmm. Right, Prabhupada said, first, 
First dress, then address. Interesting, huh? I, I had several, um, several times when I, I wasn't dressed very nicely and I ended up on television. <laughs> Once I was at the, the Palace of Gold, I was putting on the gold leaf and the copper leaf on the palace, and some big TV station came. And Kirtananda was there. He said, Romila, give them a tour. <laughs> so I gave him, I was, I was wearing this like ratty old thing, you know, and it was covered with little bits of gold and copper leaf all over my clothes. Ended up today's show. <laughs> <laughs> and another time here at the, in Detroit, I was wearing some old faded rag. And uh, I thought I was going to go do a radio show. Mookie had said, you know, at the last minute, she's coming in the morning, you know, we have a radio show. The devotee's supposed to go, and they're sick, and we go along. Sure. And I go, and it wasn't a radio show, it was a television show. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, after the the second incident, I decided that I was pretty much always going to make sure I was dressed nicely, unless I was looking at my orders. First first dress, then I dress. Here we have an incarnation of the Lord who's known specifically for dressing nicely and then talking a lot sometimes. Some of us like me are very vocal. But here we have an incarnation of the Lord that is, this is the two features he's known for talking a lot and dressing nicely. Okay, translation and purport by Shri Prabhupada. When the atheists, after being well versed in the Vedic scientific knowledge, annihilate inhabitants of different planets, flying unseen in the sky, on well-built rockets prepared by the great scientist Maya. Whoa. <laughs> Let's read that again. When the atheist, after being well-versed in the Vedic scientific knowledge, annihilate inhabitants of different planets, flying unseen in the sky, in, on well-built rockets prepared by the great scientist Maya. Is that amazing? <coughs> People make science fiction stories, you know, books and movies about this sort of thing. Here it is. The Lord will bewilder their minds. And how will the Lord bewilder their minds? What is he going to do? Two things. Well, you mentioned to dress nicely and talk a lot. <laughs> so will bewilder their minds by dressing himself attractively as Buddha, and will preach on sub-religious principles. So we don't have. Um, we don't have the word Buddha in the Sanskrit. Purport: This incarnation of Lord Buddha is not the same Buddha incarnation we have in the present history of mankind. According to Srila Jiva Goswami, the Buddha incarnation mentioned in this verse appeared in a different Kali age. In the duration of life of one Manu, there are more than 72 Kali Yugas. In one Manu. And in one of them, how many Kali Yugas are in one day of Lord Brahma? thousand. There's a thousand cycles of the four yugas in one day of Lord Brahma. One, every day of Lord Brahma, there's a thousand Kali yugas. 
Um, what did Prabhupada say there? In one manu, there's how many? 72. He said more than. <laughs> more than 72. And in one of them, the, the particular type of Buddha mentioned here would appear. Lord Buddha incarnates at a time when the people are most materialistic and preaches common sense religious principles. Which means that common sense isn't always common. Such ahimsa is not a religious principle itself, but it is an important quality for persons who are actually religious. It is a common sense religion because one is advised to do no harm to any other animal or living being because such harmful reactions are equally harmful to he who does the harm. So, uh, do no harm is, a, is as Prabhupada says, it's common sense, not to harm. Like the oath that doctors are supposed to take. First, do no harm. And there was, uh, I read some research many years ago, an article in the New York Times about are there universal moral principles, transcultural moral principles. So the sociologists researched for many years all different cultures and they found five transcultural moral principles. Purity, authority, just have, you know, in other words, you just have more respect for authority than we do for people not Fairness, community, and harm. So purity, you can see that, um, that a lot of these are biologically based, where they're, they come from, as far as said, common sense, that they come from just an observation of nature. You don't need a religious scripture or a religious teacher generally. I mean, here Buddha has to come in and do it. Because, hey, guys, <laughs> some common sense here. <laughs> and he dresses really beautifully so they pay attention. Oh, 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 oh. So, you know, purity, you can see that if we eat impure things, we get sick. If we touch impure things, we get sick. So purity is a transcultural moral principle that it's better to be pure. <coughs> how, how cultures define purity yeah, is quite different. And the stress they put on it may be different. So, you know, in our modern American culture, there's idea of pure meat, you know, it's been inspected by the, whatever. Grade A beef. Grade A, yeah, it's been inspected. Pure. So that, but the concept of purity is there. And then authority, that's also biologically based because you can't be born without a mother and father. And your mother and father take care of you. And without some respect for your mother and father, you're not going to live. I'm putting aside, you know, grossly neglectful and abusive parents, but the vast majority of people, their parents take care of them, and if they don't respect their parents, they're going to die. They're going to get hurt. So this concept of, of having more respect for authority, that it's worse to harm a police officer than an ordinary citizen, for example, is, is, is there in all human society. And fairness. Now, fairness, I, I couldn't think of as a strong biological basis for that except perhaps um, that society has some invested interest in taking care of its weak members also and not having an exploitive, you know, that's kind of counter to the Darwinian idea, the concept of fairness. The Darwinian idea is that might makes right and survival of the fittest and, and that unfairness is actually a moral principle. But it's interesting that despite the preaching of Darwinian philosophy, 
that there's still a universal moral principle that things should be fair. Then community. So community kind of is a sort of an expansion on authority that uh, it's very, very difficult for human beings to exist on their own. We're social animals. We have a very difficult time getting all of our necessities of life by ourselves. You know, the, the idea of a Robinson Crusoe who's on a deserted island by himself. It, it doesn't work for you. And that, again, different cultures emphasize this differently. You know, we Americans emphasize individuality more than community. And a place like Japan emphasizes community more than individuality. But we, we also emphasize community. You know, whether it's our religious community, our racial community, our ethnic community, our gender community, our national community, whatever, our university community. Family. You know, our family community. We, we have some sense of loyalty to a group. And without some loyalty to a group, uh, it's, very, it's very hard to survive. And then the last one is harm, which has been probably mentioned here. I was going to say fellowship in, in, in the same Berkeley community. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And the idea of harm, as Barbara says, is common sense. You know, if you have uh, human societies where people are allowed to harm each other, then everybody gets hurt, as Barbara says here. It's common sense religion because one is advised to do no harm to any animal or living being because such harmful actions are equally harmful to he who does the harm. So what does that mean? So on just an everyday common sense platform, if I'm harming others, then I'm going to be living in a society where people can harm each other. <laughs> then I'm going to be living in a dangerous society. I'm going to be living in a dangerous situation where I'm also subject to harm. I was having a talk with one devotee yesterday about a certain person who maybe uh, may have been uh, unfairly accused of some crimes. And I was saying that this person also acted as a judge accusing other people of crimes in the past. And maybe this is a response to it. So, you know, if, if we treat others in a harmful way, then we also may be subject to that harm, even if you don't believe in the law of karma or the incarnation or anything like that. You know, if people who commit violence end up living in a violent society. Yeah, you, you, you're, you go around shooting people and you live in a community where you're going to be shot. It's just how it works. And if you think about karma, then ultimately the only person you harm when you harm others is yourself. Because on the karmic level, I don't have the ability to harm somebody who doesn't deserve that harm by their own actions. And so all I'm doing by being the instrument of their bad karma is bringing karma on myself. I mean, less on the instrument of their karma in an authorized way. If I'm authorized by the government, something otherwise if I just add this. Now, for the rest of this purportual, Prabhupada is really going to go to a, a big chunk of a verse in the Bhagavad Gita, and he's basically importing this Bhagavad Gita verse into this purport. And it's interesting that Srila Prabhupada is taking this Bhagavad Gita verse, and he's importing in a way where the order of the Sanskrit that Krishna gives in this verse, Srila Prabhupada is taking as some sort of consecutive um, building up of qualities. <coughs> but before learning these principles of nonviolence, going on with the purport, one has to learn two other principles, namely to be humble and to be prideless. Unless one is humble and prideless, one cannot be harmless and nonviolent. And after being nonviolent, one has to learn tolerance and simplicity of living. One must offer respects to the great religious preachers and spiritual leaders and also train the senses for controlled action. 
learning to be unattached to family and home, and enacting devotional service to the Lord, etc. So, etc. probably stops. He doesn't go on with the rest of the Bhagavad Gita verses. At the ultimate stage, one has to accept the Lord and become his devotee. Otherwise, there is no religion. In religious principles, there must be God in the center. Otherwise, simple moral instructions are merely sub-religious principles, generally known as upadharma, or nearness to religious principles. So, what Bhagavad Gita verse is Prabhupada importing into this book? Name that verse. Name that verse. 13, 8 to 12. 13, 8 to 12, yes. And let's look at 13, 8 to 12. And it's significant that in this today's verse, that Prabhupada is looking at the order of the Sanskrit in this verse and saying that this order builds on one another. You know, in, um, as, as a teacher, there are certain subjects that build on one another. So generally, before you can learn to read, you have to know what? Your alphabet. Your alphabet. Could you learn to read without knowing the alphabet? It would be difficult. It would be difficult. Before you can learn addition and subtraction, you have to know how to count. count right? Or before you can learn... Aha, uh-huh, this is going to be a very hard test. Before you can add and subtract fractions with unlike denominators, what do you have to be able to do? Add and subtract fractions with like denominators. You have to be able to add and subtract fractions with like denominators. And what else? You have to do something that is entirely useless by itself. Reciprocate. You're, you're right next to it. Yes, you've got to be able to find reciprocal fractions, equivalent fractions. Yes, exactly. Before you can add and subtract fractions with unlike denominators, you have to be able to find reciprocal or equivalent fractions. Now, finding equivalent fractions is a completely and totally useless skill in and of itself. See, as a teacher, I always ask myself, why am I teaching when I'm teaching? I, I took like a kind of a personal vow that I would everything I taught had to be useful. And I ask myself, why are we teaching equivalent fractions? It has no value in and of itself whatsoever. You know, nothing. At all. I mean, learning the alphabet by itself also really doesn't do a thing for you. So there's learning how to count wood. But there's certain skills that in and of themselves have absolutely no value, but they have value as foundations for other skills. And then there are skills that have value in and of themselves and also have value for other skills. And then there are a bunch of skills that you can learn in any order. You don't, you have to learn how to make rice before you make bread. No, you can learn how to make bread before you make rice. Now even in cooking, some skills build upon other skills. It's pretty hard to cook a vegetable dish if you don't know how to cut vegetables. But you, you could first learn how to make a vegetable dish and then a rice dish. The, the order is irrelevant. And in a lot of elementary science, the order is irrelevant. A lot of elementary ge- um, geography, the order is irrelevant. You, know, you don't have to teach third grade geography before fifth grade geography, actually. They don't build on one another, maybe to a small extent. But there are certain areas, a lot of mathematics and a lot of grammar, where if, if you don't have the beginning skills, you simply can't go on. So one could read this verse, and, actually it's a series of verses in Bhagavad Gita, and think that this is... Krishna's just giving sort of a random list. Like when, when we um, have lists, right? When we write lists, we can bullet point them or we can number them. Now, generally, bullet pointing them indicates that they could be independent of one another. Numbering them indicates that they might be independent of one another, 
or they might be dependent on one another. Uh, we were just, and right now I listen to an audiobook every morning when I do my puja, and right now I'm listening to Madhya 8, the um, Ramanan Sambada, the conversation between Mahaprabhu and Ramanan Roy. And there's a, a place where Ramananda Roy is listing. It's a list that's also given, I believe, in Udwalan Money by Rupa Goswami. He's listing the duties of the assistant gopis, the sakis, uh, I'm sure the mandiris also. And, and he gives a list of what they do. And I think number six or something is surrender to Krishna. So I was, I was listening to this in Seattle at my son's house. My daughter-in-law was there. And she said, don't you have to surrender to Krishna first? Why is that like number six or something? And I was saying, well, I'm not sure if these are consecutive. You know, and then I went back and listened to the list a few more times. I'm like, is this actually consecutive? You know, so maybe it's consecutive during a particular leela, but I don't think it's always consecutive. So even though they were numbered, like number one is, or, you know, those 25 qualities of Shimati Rani, I don't think those are consecutive. So even sometimes when there's numbers, one may not be dependent on one another. But Prabhupada in today's purport is giving these as dependent on one another. So, this is a very important verse in Bhagavad Gita, and this verse is where Krishna is describing the process of knowledge. knowledge. Process of knowledge. How do you learn things? So we think, well, how do you learn things? Well, you show up in a class, and you sit down, and you take out your note paper, and you pay attention, and you have to have a certain level of intelligence. You know, if you've got an IQ of like below 50, it's going to be pretty hard. You know, so you have to have some kind of prerequisites, and then you probably have to understand the language, and so, so many things. So we're thinking like that, and you have to study, you know, memorize, and that's how you learn things, right? You put them into practice, the process of learning. So Krishna's not giving that kind of a process of learning here at all. Not, not at all. He's giving something completely different. He's giving a process of developing a certain kind of quality. And, and this sort of process has been practically lost today. This concept that in order to learn something, you have to have a certain character. You know, character instruction nowadays is a separate subject. Okay, today we're going to study geography. You know, we're studying geography at 10 o'clock and then we're going to study values at 11 o'clock. Okay, everybody, let's study values. Everybody should be honest, you know, which is not a very good way to teach values at all. <laughs> but they're seeing it as separate. They're not seeing that you need these values integrated. In, integrated in order to learn, in order to understand. Is that called pedagogy? Yes. So this is very interesting, this, this process that Krishna gives. Who is the knower? What is to be known, and how do you know? How do you learn? Why is it you think that we need good qualities in order to actually have knowledge? To discern if something is right or wrong. Bingo. And in fact, later in the Bhagavad Gita, what does Krishna list as one of the qualities of the mode of goodness? To know what is to be done and what is not. Yes. It's, you know, if this is like one of the only verses you know from the Shastra, at least the English. In the mode of goodness you know what is to be done, what is not to be done. What is to be feared, what is not to be feared. What is binding and what is non-binding. Non -binding, what is liberating. 
Why do we need this verse? Because how many times during the day do we not want to know what to do? All the time. People come to me for advice all the time, and their advice almost always is, what do I do? 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 Do I live here? Do I live there? Do I get married? Do I not get married? Do I marry this person? Do I marry that person? Do I have children? Do I not have children? How many children do I have? When do I have them? What kind of job do I have? Where do I work? What kind of hours do I have? <coughs> what do I do? Well, you see, like Krishna would tell him to use your head. He didn't put it up there for a decoration. Yeah, you go. But see, you can't use your head if your head's full of cotton candy. Mm. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, I, I was in India once. I was in India many times. But one time in India in Tirupati with Jaidota Janava, we were driving around and it was really foggy in the morning. We couldn't see very well. And then at a certain point I realized that the fog had cleared. But we still couldn't see very well. Why? Because the windshield was foggy inside the car. So Indian drivers are interesting. And I, I said to the driver, you know, put on the windshield, the blower on the windshield. Clear off the windshield. He didn't want to do it. He thought it was going to use gas. Like, it's not going to use any gas. Just turn it on. He wouldn't turn it on. Finally, being the, the assertive, aggressive uh, New Yorker that I am, I said, pull over and we're not driving until you get this windshield. He did. And then the back window was all foggy. And I noticed the wires in the window. I said, turn on the back heater. Doesn't work. Pull over. I actually got out of the car, went up to the front, turned the, pushed the button. said, it works just fine. And then we could see. The problem, we often think that our problems are outside of us. You know, which way do they turn? Right? Left. But our windshield's foggy. And when I tell people all the time, clean your windshield, then you won't have to ask me what to do. I can guide you how to clean your windshield, and once you've done that, you'll know what to do. You know, if somebody uses this happens all the time. What do I do? I said, you haven't surrendered to Krishna. I said, go to the deities in the temple where you are, Tell them, show me what to do and I'll do whatever you want. I said, you've got to say that sincerely. It can't be, I'll do whatever you want if you want this and this. Then I'll do it. If you want A and B, I'll do it. If you want C and D, forget it. I said, go and surrender to Krishna. Then you'll know what to do. Talked to her a few days later. So, did it work? And, and she was saying to me, oh, but, but that's not my real problem. My real problem is that, should I stay here or not? Should I do this service or not? Should, that's my real problem. I said, no, your real problem is your windshield is true. I said, have you surrendered? No. But that's not my real problem. I said, no, that's your problem. That's the problem. You don't know that. That's the problem. So Krishna's giving this as a process of knowledge. So let's look at this. Humility, pridelessness, nonviolence, tolerance, simplicity, approaching a bona fide spiritual master, and Prabhupada ends there for this book. Uh, well, a little bit, I guess it is. Cleanliness, steadiness, self-control, renunciation of the objects of sense gratification, absence of false ego, the perception of the evil of birth, death, old age, and disease, detachment, freedom from entanglement with children, wife, home, and the rest, even-mindedness amid pleasant and unpleasant events, constant and unalloyed devotion to me, aspiring to live in a solitary place, detachment from the general mass of people, accepting the importance of self-realization and philosophical search for the absolute truth.
So this is Krishna's list. And going back to today's purport, he talks about not doing harm, not having a himsa. He says, before learning nonviolence, one has to learn uh, hum- one has to learn two other principles, to be humble and to be prideless. Unless one is humble and prideless, one cannot be harmless and nonviolent. And after being nonviolent, one has to learn tolerance and simplicity of living. One must offer also ugh, one must offer respects to the great religious preachers and spiritual leaders, and also train the senses for controlled action, learning to be unattached to family and home and enacting devotional service. So this is Prabhupada's giving this order. Deva Dvisham Nigama Vartmani Nishitanam Pur Purbir Mayena Vikita Biradishiturbi Lokam Ratam Mati Vimo Hanati Pralobam Besham Vidaya Bahubashyata O Padarnyam. When the atheists, after being well versed in the Vedic scientific knowledge, annihilate inhabitants of different planets flying unseen in the sky on well built rockets prepared by the great scientist Maya. The Lord will bewilder their minds by dressing himself attractively as Buddha and will preach unsub-religious principles. Okay, so there's this conundrum. What comes first? The sub-religious principles or bhakti? Right? Of course, I read some really nice thing. I can't remember which devotee wrote it, so I wrote it recently. That the chicken and the egg conundrum only if only is there for people who have a linear idea of time. But those who have a circular idea of time don't have to worry about the beginning because there is none. There's a chicken, there's an egg, there's a chicken, there's an egg, there's a chicken. So what comes first, sub-religious principles or bhakti? Neither, both. Sub-religious principles are a good foundation for bhakti and bhakti in itself creates sub-religious principles. Now if one thinks... I have to first develop sub-religious principles before I can develop bhakti. What is one doing? Making those principles depend, uh, bhakti dependent on those things. Making bhakti dependent on those things. And therefore, what is one doing? What do we call that? An offense. It's actually not an offense. But it I'm is... Sure. Yeah. No, I'm not sure about much of anything, but relatively speaking, yes, I'm sure. I've learned to say I'm not sure. What if, uh, if you have your mind set to do something... But you decide to come up with a contingency plan. That's fine. You can come up with a contingency plan. Just always know that however many contingency plans you come up with, Krishna may have another idea altogether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he may have ten contingency plans, and he may have an eleventh. <laughs> Especially if none of your contingency... I mean, like Hirani Kashiku had a lot of contingency plans, and none of them worked out. But returning to this, um, if one thinks that my bhakti is dependent on these sub-religious principles. These sub-religious principles are in the area of what? Karma. Karma conduct. Or they could be in jnana conduct. Because uh, one of the uh, facets of getting liberation is having these, manifesting these good qualities. So, um, Adi Purusha Prabhu, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, he's a great Shastra teacher. And he said that for many years he felt that he couldn't really meditate on Krishna. He wasn't allowed to until he had all these good qualities. And he defined that as, as putting jnana ahead of bhakti. So what is the, the problem if we think, first I have to develop these good qualities and then I can really engage in bhakti? What are we doing? We're doing something that we're advised not to do by Rupa Goswami. 
putting a cart before the horse? Yeah, definitely. Jnana karma anavrata. He says one should not cover one's bhakti with jnana karma anadi, which also would mean yoga. So one should not cover one's bhakti with these things. And the way we cover bhakti with these things, there's at least two ways that I know of. One is to make bhakti dependent on them, or to think you can't make bhakti dependent on them, but, but to think that bhakti is dependent on them. And the, uh, the other way is to give them more importance than bhakti, to make bhakti less important. And this problem exists in our movement. Now, if you have karma misra bhakti, which is what that is, it's a mixture of bhakti and karma, can you still attain pure devotional service? The answer is yes. <laughs> Karma yoga, jnana yoga, and jnana yoga with some mixture of bhakti can bring you to the spiritual world. So, will it work? The answer is yes. So, why do we not want to do it? Longer. Huh? Longer. It takes much longer. And what part will take longer? Huh? Getting the knowledge of Getting the knowledge? What part of bhakti will, will be extended? Anartha nivritti. Anartha nivritti, yes. The, the worst part of bhakti. <laughs> <laughs> Prabhupada said, you know, until you attain nishta, it's a hard struggle with determination. Does that sound like a lot of fun? It's not. I mean, even though Kevalananda Kanda, it's all blissful, still, a hard struggle with determination, even if it's a blissful hard struggle with determination, is still a blissful hard struggle with determination. Which at Nishta it's not anymore. It's like the difference, but, you know, I, I took a, a bicycle trip, trip in the Rockies for a month with a youth group when I was 16. It's the difference between walking your bicycle up the Rockies and riding your bicycle down the Rockies. I mean, oh, the Rockies... Oh, 21? Yes. So... <laughs> Right? Walking your bicycle up the Rockies, it was still fun. I mean, the Rockies were still beautiful, and I mean, it, was, it wasn't that it was awful. It was part of the adventure, but it was a lot more fun riding your bicycle down the Rockies than walking your bicycle up the Rockies. And what happens in that hard struggle with determination is you can end up in the, where the Bhagavatam talks about between the fools and the liberated, where you become aware of the material pangs. Only the fools and the liberated are happy. You can't enjoy anything. You can't enjoy anything, yes. You're not fully really enjoying Krishna consciousness. You're enjoying Krishna consciousness, but not really fully on, on it. And you no longer have the ability to enjoy material sense gratification very effectively. You can try, but it doesn't work terribly well anymore. You know too much. You know, you, you just, it just doesn't work. You can really try it. Yeah, this is good. You know, in educational terms, we talk about unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious unconscious competence. So when you're unconsciously incompetent, you're in Maya, you don't know you're in Maya. And when you're unconsciously competent, you're just automatically serving Krishna, you don't really have to think about it. But the conscious incompetence stage is just miserable. Oh, so painful. You're like, oh, I'm envious. 
Well, I'm full of pride. Oh my God, I'm so greedy. I'm so lusty. You know, someone like Donald Trump doesn't know that he's an idiot. He doesn't have a clue. He just he really doesn't. He really thinks that he's the. the this, you know, everyone else is going, buddy. You know. But he's like the, the emperor with the naked emperor that he thinks I'm nice to dress. Everyone's like, hey, <clears throat> you know. So, but he doesn't. He actually doesn't know. So, in the unconscious incompetence stage, you don't know that you're naive. You, you don't know that you're envious. You don't know that you're that you're selfish. You actually don't know. And then when you start practicing bhakti, you become aware. Whoa, I have all these problems. And then it's conscious competence. Okay, okay, I got to think about Krishna. I got to act properly. It's deliberate. You're, you're having to make an effort, and that's also painful. Not quite as painful as just watching yourself being a demon and not being able to do anything about it. That's extremely painful. It's like, oh my God, I'm a demon and I can't stop it. <laughs> and then you're making a deliberate effort to stop it, which doesn't even work all the time. So if you mix bhakti with other things, then you cut down the ananda in bhakti. Pure bhakti is kevala ananda kanda, but you start mixing it with karma kanda or karma yoga, and it, it's not so much. It's more painful. Klesha, Krishna says, klesha detarjastation. So it'll work, but it'll take longer, and it will. You, what it will take longer is the hard part. It will take longer is the struggle. And the other problem of mixing bhakti with karma at this particular point in space and time is that most of us are not very good at karma. We're just not very good at karma. Means varnashram dharma, and we're, we're not very good at it. You know, somebody, yeah, or gyan. I mean, somebody said, "Well, half of you are falling asleep here." And this isn't even just gyan; it's bhakti gyan, and you're still falling asleep. So you know, just just like someone said to me the other day, "Oh, that devotee, he's not really exceptional because he doesn't keep his promises." And I thought, man, you know, are you really whatever you claim to be? How many of us are what we, you know, I mean, really? I thought, yeah, he's a satya by nature, but he's not like a perfect satya. He's, he's a, trying to be a satya. <laughs> you know, so we're, how many of us are perfect anythings? I mean, how many of our Iskan sannyasis are like really Vedic sannyasis? You know, give me a break. It's ridiculous. Well, well Prabhupada was some things that are noteworthy. Oh, absolutely. But are we really following all these dharmas? I mean, there's no way. There's no way. You know, people who live on charity, they're supposed to give away at the end of the day whatever they don't use that day. <laughs> who can live like that? How is it, how, how are we going to live like that? Rahasas are supposed to, you know, invite everybody to meals at their house, even feeding the rats and the snakes around. I mean, who's doing this? So we're not very good at karma. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this karma yoga business? You know, it's like, so we're not going to be able to do it very well. It's going to slow down our bhakti, and it's going to slow down our bhakti in ways that are going to really make it, make it very difficult. And then I see that a lot of the problem people have is not just offenses. We usually just jump on the offense wagon and say, you're having a problem? It's offenses. <laughs> it may not be. It may be mixing your bhakti. And we have people in our international society for Krishna consciousness who preach karma bhakti. And they preach it very vehemently. You can't do bhakti unless you're a good wife. That's karma, nature, bhakti. 
got to get your Varnashram together before you can do Bhakti. And if you don't have it together, your Bhakti is not going to work. Karma is your Bhakti. That, that's what it is. Now, of course, we should be, if we're a wife, we should be a good wife. And I mean, it's not that we shouldn't do those things, but we shouldn't do those things for the purpose of karma. We should do those things for the purpose of pleasing Krishna, and our emphasis should be to please Krishna, not to be a good this or that in the world. And therefore, our emphasis is bhakti first. Now we have purports like this where it sounds like Prabhupada is putting humility first. Where he's putting the good qualities first. We do have purports like this where we say, oh, I got to do that first. And therefore we have to be very careful when reading the Shastra and reading Srila Prabhupada that we don't just take, oh, this, this is it. No, I know. This is it. Because we have so many examples of people who put bhakti first. Give me an example of somebody who had no good qualities, put bhakti first, and from there got good qualities. Shastra. Jagai and Madai. Jagai and Madai. Somebody else in the scriptures. They had no good qualities, started with bhakti, from bhakti they got the good qualities. Migrari the hunter, yes. The voice from the sky. <laughs> Any other examples? Could we say Ajumil or is that? We could, because he'd given up his good qualities, yes. Valmiki, very good, yes. What about that Brahmin who um, looked at the prostitute for a little bit? Does that one count too? That's not Oh, oh, yeah, that was not true. Uh, uh, okay. Good. Well, and what about the prostitute who wanted to make Haridas fall down? Talk about bad qualities. She was trying to defame a saintly person. I mean, that was pretty bad. She was actually participating. I mean, just think about this for a minute. She was participating in a pretty heavy-duty Vaishnava Parad. For money. For money, she was trying to ruin the reputation of a pure devotee. It's pretty bad. But by doing a little bit of bhakti, she developed all good qualities. She developed so many good qualities that it said the stalwart Vaishnavas would come to see her. So, bhakti first. And Prabhupada's preaching was, in the West, was always bhakti first. Always. We would go out and distribute books to people. We never said to them, excuse me, sir, are you humble? Are you prideless? Are you nonviolent? Then you're ready. Then you're ready. Never. I mean, and we were distributing not just like Bhagavad Gita. We were distributing Chaitanya Charitamrita because Prabhupada was printing 10,000 or 20,000 volumes at a time. What are you going to do with 20,000 volumes? He only had 4,700 disciples and we didn't each have our own copy. But, you know, my husband and I had a copy together. We didn't each have our own. So out of the 4,700 disciples, you know, maybe you're going to need 2,000 books, let's say, 1,000 books. What are you going to do with the 20,000 books? So you got to give them to people. So we were out giving Chaitanya Charitamrita Anjali Levine 5. Did you know it wasn't Chaitanya Charitamrita Anjali Levine 5? We were giving Majalila, what I was just reading today, you know, I was just hearing today in the book. And Prabhupada's saying right there in, in Majalila 8, don't hear the pastimes of Radha and Krishna if you're not liberated. And I'm listening to this and thinking, 
huh? I was giving this book to meat-eating, alcohol-drinking, sex-mongering people in O'Hare Airport. They certainly were not liberated. This very book I was giving to them. You know, of course, Prabhupada is so amazing that Prabhupada packaged bhakti in such a way that people could take it, even if they were meat-eating, wine-drinking, sex-mongering, gambling, whatever. Isn't it? Anybody can read Krishna book. Don't read Krishna book yet, you are not liberated. No. We read Krishna book and we become liberated. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We take the Hare Krishna mantra, I have a little book on chanting the great mantra for mystic meditation, which is also on Amazon. Anyway. And in the things in the first chapter, I talk about how we go out on Harinam. It's it's a Yugalakishore mantra. It's a mantra of the relationship between Radha and Krishna, and we're chanting this mantra to the general public and asking them to chant. And we go out on a Saturday night, you know. We don't say, you know, um, <clears throat> what qualities do you have? We would love for Donald Trump to chant the Hare Krishna mantra. We'd be so happy. We wouldn't say, look, first, buddy, you got to get a little, what is it here? First, a little humility. We'd be waiting a long time. We'd <laughs> 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 be waiting a very long time. Probably going to be a few lifetimes. <laughs> and, you know, but we could get him to chant the Hare Krishna mantra. And lo and behold, what happens when you chant the Hare Krishna mantra? Good qualities naturally. The good qualities naturally. And then by development of these good qualities, more bhakti develops. And by more bhakti, the good qualities develop. And by the more good qualities, you get more bhakti. And by the more bhakti, you get the more good... But you can start with bhakti. Can you start with the good qualities? Yes. Is that going to be very doable in 2018? No. How many people walking around are humble, prideless, and nonviolent already without bhakti? Some, but not very many. But what about uh, uh, if you're haughty and proud? Hmm? If, if you're haughty and proud. If you're haughty and proud, you can yeah. still chant Hare Krishna. And it's really, and you can still take prasadam. And you can still come and do a little service. Haughty and proud people can do those things. I am doing service because I am so great. And you know what happens? Eventually the service starts working in your heart. And eventually the service working in your heart goes... <laughs> and you see it you actually see it you go whoa I'm not so great has that happened to all of us did we know that would happen would we have signed up if we knew <laughs> I don't know I don't know you know I remember saying one of my professors if I had known that I was going to have to confront in an art and a I don't know if I would have signed up. I really don't know. And sometimes I warn people, and I wonder, should I warn them? Or should I just let them find out? <laughs> but as you chant Hare Krishna, and as you go through this process, you're going to come to a conscious incompetence platform where you will see, whoa, I am as sinful as Jagai Madai. I am a demon. I am evil. You'll see that. 
If you haven't seen it, it's coming around the corner, folks. And you'll see it. And you're going to have to deal with it. Of course, you can turn tail and run away. Leave bhakti. Or start doing bhakti only superficially. You know, you can get so freaked out by seeing this stuff that you just say, I'm just going to chant inattentively <laughs> so I can still get prasadam, but I don't have to actually steal this stuff. You can do that. You can do that for quite some time. You won't be very happy, but that's another thing. So, it would be interesting, which we don't have time today, but it would be interesting uh, to think of how, how do these things relate to each other consecutively. It would be an interesting study, and I started getting into it, and I realized that it would take me, you know, much more time than the half hour I was able to give to it. How is it that without humility, you can't be prideless? Without pridelessness, you can't be harmless. Without harmlessness, you can't be tolerant. Without being tolerant, you can't be simple. Without being simple, you can't surrender to a guru. How does that work exactly? I mean, we can look at it just, just super briefly. That, you know, Prabhupada's defining humility in the Bhagavad Gita as not, not being anxious to have the satisfaction of being honored by others. You brought up yesterday, people don't honor you for your contributions. This, you know, someone just said this to me the other day too. It was the telepresence wife. And she said, my husband gets all the credit, but I do a lot of the work. We are anxious, me included, I'm not picking on anybody. We are anxious for the satisfaction of being honored by others. And if we don't get it, we tell them that we want it. You know. And, and oh, by the way, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. Right? I was at my kid's house and um, my oldest granddaughter was talking about how people didn't recognize what she did. And then one of her younger sisters started talking about what she did. And when I cleaned the kitchen, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. And I said to the older one, she wants to be appreciated. She said, well, I already thanked her. I said, no, she wants to be appreciated for these details, how she cleaned the stove. And I said, she didn't just want to thank you. You know. She wouldn't give it to her. She said, I already thanked her. That's enough. One situation where it would be like, cow turns unto you. Yeah, yeah. Unto me. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So first to give up the desire to get the satisfaction. It is satisfying, isn't it? I mean, come on, it is. Of course it's. Prabhupada says it's satisfying. So not to be anxious. Will I will I be honored by others? Will I be honored by others? Will they recognize what I've done? Will they recognize what I've done? Or will I have to go on without being recognized, always in the background and other people getting the credit? Or be worse being told that I'm well, we'll get to that. So this is the first one, not being anxious to be honored by others. Then from that comes pridelessness, not wanting to be honored for one's religion specifically. Not just honor in general, but honor for being a pious person, a religious person, a spiritual person, a sincere devotee. And only from that can you not be harmful to others. Why exactly? I'm not sure. Why somehow this desire to be honored causes us to harm others? Perhaps we want to put others down so that we can be above them and be Perhaps we're just not able to give other people credit and give other people uh, if, if I want to be honored, and therefore I will harm others. It, it's very common that we put others down as a way of putting ourselves up. 
although it doesn't really work. You, or, what do they say? Your candle doesn't shine any brighter by blowing out the other ones. Then only from that can we be tolerant, Prabhupada's saying. Only when we no longer want to harm others, when we're actually non-envious, can we be tolerant. And what is it we're supposed to tolerate, Prabhupada says? We're supposed to bear insult and dishonor from others. So not being honored and being dishonored are not exactly the same thing. Not being honored is kind of omission. I just didn't get honored. Nobody noticed that I scrubbed all the little cracks in the floor. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody said anything. Oh, the room is the room. But I cleaned the whole room. And nobody notices. But that's different. Being dishonored is, no, oh, you were lazy bum. What did you do all day? Clean the room. You know, we get criticized for something we didn't do. Or we get criticized for something we did. Whatever. <laughs> you know? So that's very difficult to bear insult and dishonor. Especially dishonor for things we didn't do. Especially, you know, un, uh, undeserved dishonor. And of course, generally we feel our dishonor is undeserved, by the way. We very rarely feel that our dishonor is deserved. Very, very rarely. Even when it's obvious to everybody that our dishonor is deserved, and it should be you know, obvious to us, we generally feel, well, it was just an accident. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to pick you up five hours late for the airport. It just happened. You know, so it's, we, we tend to think like this. We really, really. So we can only actually be free from this uh, aggravation about being dishonored once we actually have no envy and no, no yeah, of others. Then simplicity, to tell the real truth even to an enemy. We can only do that when we're not worried about being dishonored. Why don't we tell the truth? We don't tell the truth because we know darn well that if I tell the truth, I'm going to be dishonored. Because the truth about me is not always honorable. So I have to be free from this. Like Malati was saying yesterday that somebody threatened to criticize her all over the internet. She said, not only can you do that, I will even tell you bad things about me that you don't know. That you can add. So this is a simplicity. That I'm willing to be truthful even to someone who will use that truth against me. And only from there can you actually surrender to a guru. So trying to surrender to a guru without all of that doesn't work very well. Why? Because you want the guru to honor you. You don't want the guru to criticize you. You won't tolerate when the guru corrects you. You'll be envious of the guru. You'll be envious of God brothers, God sisters, uh, and so forth. Now, the last thing we're going to look at here is that we have these demons. They hate their deva dvisham. They're envious of the devas. And they have Vedic scientific knowledge. They have Vedic scientific knowledge. They have so much Vedic scientific knowledge that they can make invisible spaceships. You know, that's something that modern militaries are really into. They're not exactly invisible, but they have these, you know, aircraft that can't be detected by radar and things like that. So not exactly invisible. They try. They try. They would love to make invisible aircraft. I mean, that would, I'm sure, I'm sure there's somebody working on it. Yeah. yeah I'm for sure. The most expensive planes beat radar. Yeah. You can physically see them, but they can't be seen on By, radar. Exactly. And there's submarines also. I was watching something about this the other day. That um, there are these little tiny submarines that can beat out the huge 
submarines because they're, they're basically invisible to sonar. But they're not invisible to our eyes. But I'm sure that there's people in militaries in the world who are trying to work on aircraft and boats that are actually invisible to the eyes. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure. When it was just a big news piece the other day, some lab, yeah. they found like invisibility cloak, basically. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm sure somebody's giving a lot of attention to it. So the Vedas actually do teach you how to do that. The Vedas didn't just teach how to go to Goloka Vrindavan and attain pure bhakti. The Vedas also taught you how to make invisible spaceships. Pretty cool, huh? They did. And not only were these spaceships invisible, but they were destroying other planets. They were blowing up other planets, or destroying at least all the inhabitants of the other planets. So there was some interplanetary war going on here by demoniac beings who had Vedic knowledge of invisible spacecraft. But they didn't have good qualities. So the problem with getting knowledge without having this humility, pridelessness, ahimsa, is that the knowledge becomes misused. And of course, we see this in human history over and over and over and over. They say a snake with a jewel on its head is more dangerous than a snake not decorated. You know, being a very smart, knowledgeable demon, better you're an ignorant, foolish demon. You know, to, to have very uh, intelligent and very well-educated and very knowledgeable evil people is really a problem. Which comes back to what I said in the beginning about what is the process of gaining knowledge. And knowledge gained in that way ends up, as Prabhupada said, if you harm others, it ends up harming yourself. Uh, knowledge gained in ways that don't involve good qualities ends up being the undoing of the person who got the knowledge. And, of course, one story in the Bhagavatam is of Sudakshina. Sudakshina's uh, father was killed by Lord Krishna in a battle, and Sudakshina vowed vengeance. And so he had these priests invoke a demon who could kill anyone who was neither a Brahmin nor who worshipped the Brahmanas. And he thought, Krishna's not a Brahmana, he's a Kshatriya, and he doesn't worship the Brahmanas, the Brahmanas worship him, which is totally wrong for Kshatriya, so therefore I can kill him. And he sent this demon to Dwarka, and, uh, of course, he was uh, pushed back by the Sudarshan chakra, and he returned to Kashi, and he destroyed Sudakshina and the priest and Kashi. And this is the situation nowadays that people are trying to get knowledge without good qualities. The result is they are destroying the planet. They don't have to destroy other planets, they're destroying this one. You know, let us have the knowledge of how to make animals get fat very quickly so we can slaughter them early. Let me have the knowledge of how to force the plants to bear in all seasons and to bear on infertile soil you know, through the use of chemicals and then they're disrupting the whole ecosystem. So they have all this, you know, let's get the knowledge of how to destroy infections with antibiotics and mess up your whole, you know, internal flora and your whole internal balance. So they have all this knowledge, not that they don't have the knowledge, they have wonderful, incredible, amazing knowledge, but because they're also, uh, they don't have these good qualities, the knowledge is not only harming everybody else, it's coming back and harming them. They're also living in a polluted planet, they're also dying of cancer, they're also, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's harming them, and plus it's harming their karma. So this, uh, this, this problem of good qualities not being used to gather knowledge. And we're not going to be able to get people to have good qualities independently of them. It's not going to happen. 
So if we want to transform the world, just going out there and trying to teach people to be humble and be nonviolent, good luck. It's just not going to work to try to get the good qualities first. It's probably not going to work in ourselves either. At least I haven't found it to work in myself. I find all my attempts to get good qualities without bhakti are, are partial and temporary. So what we really need to do to save the world, this is to save the world, folks. What we really need to do to save the world is go out and give bhakti to people. So let's dress nicely. <laughs> let's dress nicely and talk very much about Krishna. Let's attract people. This particular incarnation took these people misusing knowledge, misusing information, misusing science, and he attracted them. He did not go and smash them over the head. He attracted them. So let's attract them. Let's attract them to bhakti. Somehow or other, let's attract them to bhakti. Somehow or other, let's attract them to bhakti. Yes? Um, I love this whole uh, day I have given a question that keeps it in my mind and it comes to this point about the preaching. I'm told that in Russia especially, a lot of the preaching, a lot of the substantial swell that we see is from basically motive goodness entrance that devotees have these programs where people want to learn how to be a better parent, how to you know, manage mm. their finances, how to mm. be, how to be mm. a, a kind person, etc., etc. That's an attractive dress. And so they, yeah, they kind of set things up like that, and then later on it's bhakti. So would you call that a, a Mishra situation, or is that just... I call it an attractive dress. Okay. You've got to have an attractive dress. Mm. Especially in Kali Yuga. This is talking about an incarnation that appeared in Kali Yuga. In Satya Yuga, you probably didn't need an attractive dress. <laughs> Nobody cared. Everybody already had good qualities. Loincloths were... Loincloths were the fashion statement. You know, it just, it wasn't... <coughs> Nobody even had to do agriculture in the beginning of Kali Yuga. There were not even any... They didn't even need government. It wasn't, everybody was hamsa. They just picked the fruit from the trees. and you know, Everything was just there. You didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. But now it's necessary to have... Just like Prabhupada started the Sunday love feast. That's not the Shastra. Why did he do that? To attract I've heard people criticize, you know, like Indudum Swami has these Harinams where the women are in beautiful saris and with fans and... You've got to have something. Yeah. You know, colorful festivals, big Rathiyatra carts and balloons. And, and yeah, you want to also go... To what, if you don't first present what people want, so if you go to people, I'm telling you, even go to devotees. You know, if you go to serious devotees and say, okay, we're going to have a class on how to attain pure love of God, you're not going to have as many people come as if you say, we're going to have a class on how to get along with your spouse. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, it's just the, the truth. <laughs> you know, I read about a church like that. They, they, you know, nobody was coming. Twenty people were coming, and then they advertised. You know how they advertised the lecture? They advertised what to, what to do if you married the wrong person. Two thousand people came. <laughs> this is, you know, this is the reality. So even even for devotees, you know, really seriously, it's true. Yeah. How many devotees will attend a seminar on? Attaining pure, selfless, humble love for God. 
Why wouldn't that be your alternative home? I don't know. They're just like, then you know, and they or they come and they'll just fall asleep. And you, you, you've got to hit people where they're at. Yeah. You know, most of us don't wake up in the morning saying, man, i got to develop better love for God today. We wake up going, oh, i got to make a car payment. And, oh, did I get the broccoli? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that other brown choice. Is he still angry with me for what I said yesterday? Is that going to work out? Am I going to have enough money for this? That's probably what we're thinking about. And that those are our main things. You know, we're many of us are struggling just to chant over those sort of things. That the mind's going, Hare Krishna! <laughs> you know, so, yeah, we, you want to, and you find the Bhagavatam's doing this all the time. It's going to where people's immediate concerns are and then take them from that immediate concern and take them from there to bhakti. Say, hey, you have this problem, guess what will solve it? Ah, bhakti. Yeah. I have a question about this uh, in relation to, we have this, I'm not talking about institutionalization, but I'm talking about standardization mm. of these programs, mm. I guess, like the Sunday Love Feast. Every temple is the same time, the same sort of setup. And I'm sure Prabhupada did that to attract people because it was something that would work. Yes. So I'm wondering how much of that is useful to shift and change to see, okay, well, what works now <coughs> versus keeping a culture that Srila Prabhupada established mm-hmm. that's enlightening for the devotees. This is like when Burjan asked Prabhupada, what's the principle and what's the detail? And Prabhupada said that requires intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, the Sunday love feast, as far as I know, is not in one of the lists of the 64 angas of bhakti given by Rupa Goswami. Uh, therefore, we can say that it is not a, it, it's a detail. And, and frankly, I mean, there's a nice purport in the fifth canto in the relationship to Bharat Maharaj. And Prabhupada says, in other yugas, the process of bhakti looked different. So even a lot of the, what we're given now by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and by Rupa Goswami, frankly, is a detail. You know, principles are things like love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are eternal, transcultural, trans time, trans yuga principles. What was Dhruva Maharaj chanting? Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Now we also chant that, but not as our main mantra. And the process he was doing, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> What's a reckless? Good luck. <laughs> What's a reckless? A dry leaf. <laughs> and another one after 12 days. So, you know, I don't think, I, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I'd leave and say, sorry, not for me. So even a lot of the things that we take as principles actually are not. They may be principles for this time, but they're not actually universal principles. So Prabhupada had a Sunday love feast. Why? Well, first of all, because he came to a Christian culture where people were accustomed to going to church on a Sunday. That's why he picked Sunday, rather than another day. And he was a time where the counterculture were having be-ins and love-ins, so he called it a love feast. 
because they were having love feasts and lovings, and so we called it the Sunday love feast. Now, I mean, as far as chanting, dancing, and feasting, I don't think we should be changing that. But as far as do we have to have a Sunday love feast that we call a Sunday love feast? Does it have to be on a Sunday? Does it have to be called a love feast? Does it have to be at a certain time? I mean, those certainly are details. And what exactly do you do? I mean, one of the first Sunday feasts that I attended, they were doing Tulsi RT. <laughs> That's kind of weird for most people. I mean, it is. It's, it's kind of peculiar. So that might not be the best way to just introduce Krishna consciousness to people. You know, what's happened now in many of our centers is our Sunday feast has become more or less a cultural program for people from India where they can eat the food of their childhood and talk to people in their own languages. Huh? You know, it's become very much like that. And, and, and that there may be a place for that also. I mean, I think there's a place for people who are from Indian culture to bring them in through that. Just like you're going to bring some people in through, hey, would you like to be more productive at work? Would you like to have a better marriage? Would you like to be more peaceful? And for people who are from India, especially people who are born and raised, if we say to them, hey, don't you miss your culture? Aren't you a little homesick? Come on over. We have a little India for you. So, you know, but that, that doesn't make it for people who are from Alabama. You know, they're like, they're not missing Italy's. Yeah. It's not, they're not hankering for that. They don't, they don't want people to talk Telugu to. You know, so if, if, they, if they come into a center and everybody's talking in Telugu and Hindi and everybody's eating, you know, sambar that burns your esophagus up, then they're, it doesn't resonate with them. They're not like, that's not what they were looking for. But you know, one 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 coming in my door, a this and a smidgen of that. Yeah, well, we, you basically you, you need to get people where they're at, uh-huh. and so at least initially there may be a whole lot of different presentations for different people. And Prabhupada also did that. I mean, Prabhupada had different presentations when he was talking to scholars. And, no, it's, it's, it's not. I mean, one of the um, I'm going over time. Is are you, is this really bad? No, we have like 10 minutes. Oh, this is supposed to be something else. Well, yeah, since we're reached CC time, then we... If that happens, then we go to 9. Oh, okay. So, just like in in London at Soho Street, if any of you have been to Soho Street, so the downstairs is Govinda's restaurant. You walk up one flight of stairs, and they're serving out Mahaprasadam at noon for free. They're serving out the leftovers from breakfast... The leftovers from the devotees' breakfast and the lunch Mahaprasad for free. And then there's a little talk. You go down the street, there's what they call food for all, where it's also free. So you have three places where they're serving prasad, two in the same building, at the same time. One you have to pay, you walk in with your shoes, you sit at a table and chair, you pay, you order, buffet, what you, want. you order what you want, and there's a mixture of Indian type food and British type food, they have truffles, and, you know, cheesecake, pizza, pizza. 
They have calzone, they have rice and dal, they have all kinds of things. Yeah. And then upstairs, it's the prasad and prasad, and you're sitting on the floor without your shoes in the temple room. And it's free. And then you can go down the street and you can get, you know, like just kitri and halva. So why would somebody prefer to pay for what they could get for free? But they do. People are paying to go to Govindas downstairs when they could just walk upstairs and get free food. But they would rather pay because there's a particular... They feel, I'm coming, I'm paying, I'm just coming to a restaurant. I'm not making some commitment to this weird religion. Joining. You're not joining. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not risking being brainwashed. You know, I'm just coming and having a meal. And, and that's what they're comfortable with. So that's, you know, and then we have a shop, and people go to the shop. Some people who probably wouldn't take a book from us off the street will buy a book from a shop. You know, I mean, it's, it's just so different presentations for different people at different times, different circumstances. And that's one of the 14 items we're trying to do about knowledge, or one of the 14 items of knowledge is to know time, place, and circumstance, and another one is to act on that knowledge. And, and Krishna, that's one of his qualities that Krishna knows time, place, and circumstance, and then he acts accordingly. So just to know it isn't enough, you have to act, you act accordingly. And, I mean, just like I see in preaching, that people are very receptive to preaching about varna, but not ashram, mm-hmm. including devotees. Including devotees. Not just people in So if you're going to talk about varna, you should work according to your nature. The way, of, you know, the way you earn your livelihood should be something that you love. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to hear that? You're not going to get some objection to it. And you start describing the principles of Varna. I haven't found anybody who objects. In fact, people are very enlivened and very excited. Yeah. The moment you start talking about ashram principles, people are going to run in the other direction. They're going to blaspheme you all over the internet. Because it's just those, the ashram principles are extremely unpopular today. Why? They have to do with sense control and particularly sexual control. It's just like, nobody wants to hear that. Frankly, even devotees in the houses. I haven't found it very effective. And it's very hard to preach honestly about ashram principles. So that's, you know, it's a time, place, and circumstance. It just is what it is. <coughs> You know, in, in India, where they're still struggling with the caste system, it might be a little harder actually to preach about Varna because they might immediately associate it with the caste system. In Indonesia, it probably isn't that hard to talk about ashram because people still have piety in regard to marriage and renunciation. They still have some you know, concept there. So if you can bring up those things more in that. But that's fading. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. And this is not just for the non-devotees. It's, it's for us, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and it's how we present for ourselves, too. It's not just how I present to others. I have to package Krishna consciousness for myself, too. It was just something I wanted to share just for a moment. The other day I was reading an article about Millennials, young people who are getting married, 
and there's this counterculture, counterculture of people who have labeled their their way of living as trad life. And trad. Trad life. It's traditional. Oh, traditional life. Huh. Interesting. And they want to live traditional principles of marriage and sort of var ashram with the ashram. Interesting. But they don't know what that means or looks like, so they're going back to like a 1930s, 40s model, and it's kind of weird. And I would imagine it'd be very weird. It's weird, because they don't have any understanding of how to actually do it, but they want, they want it. And so they're getting some, a lot of backlash from others, but they really want to have this traditional way of life. And so they're um, a group of people that if you could find them, then they would be really... They would be really open to it. Because That's they're, interesting. they're interested. So it's kind of coming back, this desire for traditional living. It would be, ashrams. because by destroying the ashrams, we've really wrecked society. We've wrecked major them. wrecked society. And that's, you know, it's just in how many years, 30, 40 years, that we've just, like, taken the ashrams and slaughtered them. And, and mm -hmm. it's just, I don't think I have to go into the details. I think everybody knows the details, but it's just, just destroyed them. On every, every, in every, like every aspect of them, you know, everything. Yeah, we're not becoming very happy. So we, we've destabilized society by doing that majorly, majorly. The main place you see it is with the children. That children are unstable, but you also see it with adults. I mean, so many people who are having so many psychological and mental problems, and a lot of that comes from destabilizing society. People don't have their basic, their basic things, but that is interesting. Well, I mean, and honestly, a lot of the devotees who preach traditional ideas of ashram are looking probably at about the 1950s. Maybe they're looking at 1930, but that's probably also what they're looking at. So a lot of people that I hear preaching about, you know, some sort of traditional ashram. They're, they're looking at the last century. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is another long topic, but to look post-industrial revolution and to, try to, fight, try to figure out ashrams by looking post-industrial revolution will not give you an accurate picture. It's going to give you a really messed up picture. Mm -hmm. Because varna and ashram are related. And Prabhupada says, first varna, then ashram. So you have to look at a time when varna is normal before you can understand ashram. And particularly you're going to mess up the women's position. You're going to really mess up what women should do if you own the post-industrial society. And if you mess up what the women do, then that automatically messes up everything else. You know, any one piece you mess up. If you mess up with the men, I mean, any piece that you get radically wrong in your puzzle, you know, if you ever try to put together a puzzle, you know, if you get one piece in a radically wrong place, then nothing else fits, or a few things fit, but it doesn't really work. Your picture's all messed up. I mean, many years ago, I was in the Boston Temple, many, many years ago, 76. Um, later we found out why, but anyway, the leader there really was messing up how men and women should relate to each other. It was really, really messing up. 
And he, he took like one or two statements from Srila Prabhupada out of context and tried to make them rules for everybody. I mean, for example, there was one place where Prabhupada said, a, a married woman is beautiful, she never speaks to any woman other than her husband. Never speaks to any man other than her husband. So that would be like, you know, she never talks to her dad or her son or something. He it it, took it as this absolute that if you were a married woman, the only man you could speak to was your husband. Now, the unmarried woman could speak to anybody. So that was a little weird in and of itself. And, oh, we could, we could give a note to a man. So we could write a note and give him a note. We just couldn't speak to him, which was also a little weird. Imagine you passing notes to the man. I mean, it was insane. It was really insane. And it was so bad that there was a fire in the parking lot, and one of the, the men was trying to tell this lady in the kitchen to turn the whole... We had a, a garden hose that had to be turned on from the inside, and he couldn't get her attention because she wasn't allowed to speak to him. Yeah, it was just, and if I told you everything else, then it was just nuts. Yeah, it was just really nuts. And I thought, first of all, you're taking a statement from Prabhupada which you didn't mean in some sort of absolute way. I think you don't talk to your kids. You can only talk to my daughters. I mean, just like, really? And, and, and then he was taking this statement in, in some absolute way and he was trying to plug it into a, a society where it didn't belong. So if you take the way people got married and the way men and women behaved, post-industrialism, you're, you're going to mess things up, Major. You've got to look back. You have to look back to when Varna was normal. So you have to look pre-industrial society. Which is why I understand that Prabhupada linked Varna Ashram to pre-industrial living. For a long time, I couldn't figure out, like, why can't you do Varnashram in an industrial society? Well, you can, sort of. You can do a lot of Varnashram in an industrial society, but there's certain things that you just don't get right. And particularly, you won't get some of the ashram things right. They just, they just get walked. Especially how many people you interact with. Yeah. It's, it's especially the relation between men and women and children, especially that piece, which is mostly the ashram piece. Just as soon as you have industrialization, where people have to go to work, it's that, it's that piece. That to do your career, you have to go out of your home and journey to a place of work where you are away from your family and then you have to come home. That piece of industrialization destroys ashram. We talked about that a lot, like there's like no sense of community in the child's mind. Yeah, it, like it, just, it, it sets out these ripples that just destroy that, that thing. That one thing that you don't, that your work is entire, that for the vast majority of people you have to go to work. All of a sudden it makes the man not the head of the household because he's not home. It means if the woman works, she can't cook, she can't take care of the children, she can't serve the husband because she's not home. It means you don't want to have very many children because how in the world are you going to take care of them if you have to go to work? It means people have to, you know, live near their work. It's the, you have to move for work and split the family up. It just does all these weird things. It puts, you know, thousands of children together that have to be educated so you can't have little schoolhouses. I mean, just all these strange things in society. 
and, and then the, the level of education and training you need to get this work also goes up and up and up. So then you have to be in school until you're 25 years old. Then you don't want to get married until you're 25 or 30 or 35. Forever. But you're not going to be a brahmachari until you're 35. That's not going to happen. So then you have, you know, it just goes on and on and on. All these, all these effects of, of the way that we've industrialized. So that's so yeah. If you go back, if you just go back to an earlier form of industrialization, we're actually better off now than in 1930 to try to do ashram because with with our communication technology, we can bring career back to the home in that way. You know, we can't do it that you live on your field and you have a school in your home. And we can't do it that way very well but we can use technology to start having home-based careers. <coughs> so we're far better off than people in our techniques. They were, they were really stuck. That was, that was probably like one of the most terrible times for human beings, is in the you know, early stages, like maybe 1860 to probably 1990. Really bad, bad, bad time for human beings. All right, I'm going over and you'll never invite me back. So I'm sorry. Sure, Prabhupada Kijan.